Barry Romo was 19 years old when he went to fight in the Vietnam War. It was July 1967. Romo had volunteered for the Army, trained as an officer, and arrived in Vietnam as second lieutenant. He was assigned to be the platoon leader of an infantry unit. Within weeks of landing in Vietnam, he was leading men on search-and-destroy missions. They were fighting enemy soldiers and guerrillas at close range. I was afraid I was going to make a mistake. I was a 19-year-old lieutenant. I was going to be in charge of 45 men in combat. I wasn't afraid of, of dying, but I was worried that I would get people killed. Barry Romo was only five foot two, but he was strong and fit, and he wanted to kill communists. I volunteered because I was a dedicated anti-communist. I'd grown up in the 50s. I thought the world was uh, being controlled by an international communist conspiracy. But from the beginning, there were things about the war that troubled Romo. He identified as a Chicano, and he saw a deep strain of racism in the military. There was one event in particular. At a base where Romo was stationed, U.S. troops paid Vietnamese civilians to turn in unexploded American bombs and artillery shells. The U.S. military wanted those explosives back before enemy soldiers could find them. And there had been three or four children bringing back this round, which, as they carried it, they jarred it, and it exploded. And all but one of them were burned and dead and didn't exist. Uh, I mean, they were pulverized. One girl survived, but her body was burned all over. Romo wrapped her in a poncho and carried her to a helicopter. They flew to a nearby naval hospital. When Romo arrived with the girl in his arms, the military doctors refused to help her. They said they didn't treat Vietnamese nationals. And it didn't matter that this little girl was what we were supposedly fighting for, and it didn't matter that she had got blown up because she was bringing back an unexploded round. It didn't matter that she was doing America's bidding. The only thing that mattered was the color of her sin and the shape of her eyes. Romo took the girl to a Catholic missionary hospital. He never found out whether she lived or died. Barry Romo's tour in Vietnam ended in the spring of 1968. He was sent to an army post in California where infantry units were trained for combat. Nine months later, he was discharged. He enrolled in community college in San Bernardino, California, where he'd grown up. Romo liked college, but he was haunted by the war and what he'd done in Vietnam. I got out and felt guilty, not only for the people underneath me that died, but I felt guilty. I'd killed six Vietnamese that were close enough so that I could see their faces. And whenever we would talk about the war, I would start to cry. Romo was in torment. He quit going to church, even though he'd been a devout Catholic. He talked with peace activists, but never thought of joining them. It was 1970. President Richard Nixon ordered U.S. forces into the neighboring neutral country of Cambodia, the purpose to attack enemy bases there. Romo thought Nixon had lied that he was going back on an earlier promise to end the war. It seemed that end would never come, and that jolted Romo into action. Once I admitted to myself that the people I had killed, I had killed for nothing, that my men had died for something less than nothing, an unjust cause. I had to become politically active. I didn't want to, but people were still dying. People were still dying, and Romo felt he could help stop that. 
As a combat veteran, Romo thought Americans would listen to him when he said the war in Vietnam was immoral, that it needed to end. And it turns out Romo wasn't alone. Tens of thousands of other Vietnam War veterans opposed the war. So did a large number of active-duty GIs, both at home and in Vietnam. And they, too, were taking action. From American Public Media, this is Soldiers for Peace, a podcast about the GI and veteran anti-war movement during the Vietnam War. I'm Stephen Smith. And I'm Kate Ellis. While American GIs fought abroad, people at home battled each other and their government over whether the United States was waging a just war. More returning veterans spoke out against the war than in any American military conflict before or since. The same was true of active-duty GIs. Historians estimate that at least one in five openly opposed the Vietnam War. One in five. These soldiers, sailors, Marines, and airmen came to believe that they were not liberators in Vietnam. They were agents of tyranny. American involvement in Vietnam started in the wake of World War II. The United States provided military and financial support to the French, whose forces were fighting to recolonize Vietnam. Communist rebels in the North defeated the French. The North Vietnamese rebels were backed by China and Russia. The U.S. sent military advisors to South Vietnam to help quell an uprising there. It was the height of the Cold War. American officials, including President Dwight D. Eisenhower and then John F. Kennedy, feared that if South Vietnam fell to communists, the rest of Southeast Asia would topple like dominoes. If we withdrew from Vietnam, the communists would control Vietnam. Pretty soon, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Malaya would go. In spring of 1965, President Lyndon Johnson sent the first U.S. combat troops to fight for South Vietnam. It was a fateful decision. Over time, more than 3 million American troops would be sent to Southeast Asia. Nearly 60,000 would die, and many more would be wounded in the war. More than 3 million Southeast Asian fighters and civilians are thought to have died in the Vietnam War. As the casualties mounted, resistance to the war by Americans back home and by veterans and active-duty GIs would grow more intense by the year. The first widely publicized protest by active-duty soldiers against the war happened at Fort Hood, Texas, in 1966. It involved a 20-year-old man from the Bronx. I was a squad leader, and they generally pick as a squad leader someone they believe is leadership material, someone who, you know, who might be gung-ho, who would be willing to lead his, <laughs> his um, comrades into battles. J.J. Johnson was drafted in December 1965. The Army sent him to basic training at Fort Hood. I had been, a, as a teenager, a um, sea explorer. So I knew how to, I, similar to an older version of the Boy Scouts. So I knew how to march. I knew how to call cadence. I knew how to spit shine my shoes. The next stop for J.J. Johnson was an Army base in Georgia to train in a communications unit. There, Johnson met another New Yorker, a private named Dennis Mora. Mora was active in the anti-war movement before he got drafted. He invited Johnson to an informal study group with other GIs. Where we would read Vietnamese history and read whatever we could get our hands on about the war, about our involvement, about the 
history of the Vietnamese struggle for independence and um, against colonialism, against the French, the Chinese, and everybody else, and now the U.S. The group read about North Vietnamese communist leader Ho Chi Minh and the time Ho spent in the United States. One of the things that impressed me most was a essay he wrote about lynching in the United States, that, that this person 10,000 miles away talked about something that I hadn't even thought about that much myself. From their training base in Georgia, Johnson and others in the study group met with local peace and civil rights activists. Johnson is African-American, and he could see links between the fight against colonialism in Vietnam and the civil rights movement in America. In the summer of 1966, J.J. Johnson and Dennis Mora got orders to ship out for Vietnam. They refused. They were joined by a 29-year-old private from Chicago, and the three men were arrested. They were charged with insubordination and sentenced to three years in prison. They became known nationally as the Fort Hood Three. J.J. Johnson hoped their refusal to fight would lead to a mass exodus from the military of active-duty GIs. That didn't happen. But publicity around their case inspired GIs across the country and in Vietnam to resist the war. While J.J. Johnson was still awaiting trial in the summer of 66, a recent high school graduate from Pennsylvania was at the Paris Island Marine Corps training base in South Carolina. Even though he was physically small, Bill Earhart was learning to be a leatherneck. The Marine Corps is full of little guys like me with chips on our shoulders who want to be men. Earhart was the son of a minister. He got beat up as a kid. Big poster in front of the post office with a Marine sergeant in a dress blue uniform and just standing there, and the caption was, the Marine Corps builds men. Nobody was ever going to beat me up again. I mean, I was going to join the Marines, period. At the time, Earhart was a political liberal. But like Barry Romo and so many other Cold War kids, he was also worried about the spread of global communism. And like them, he trusted his government. When Lyndon Johnson said in a speech, if we do not stop the communists in Vietnam, we will one day have to fight them on the sands of Waikiki. That sounded serious to me. I had every reason to believe that and virtually no indication that I ought to be skeptical of that. Earhart arrived in Vietnam in February 1967. He was assigned to a Marine Infantry Battalion. His job, scout. They were patrolling a heavily populated coastal area of farms and fishing villages. The enemy, Viet Cong guerrillas, were elusive. Most of our contacts were not contacts at all. It was mines and booby traps. 75 incidents per month on average over eight months half of them resulting in Marine casualties and nobody to fight back at. Guerrilla fighters wore the same clothes as everyone else in Vietnam. Some villages secretly supported the guerrillas. Earhart found the phantom enemy frustrating and frightening. You're patrolling the same villages day in and day out, and every freaking day somebody hits a mine, you got a dead Marines, you got wounded Marines. And meanwhile, there's Joe the rice farmer out there in the field, and you start asking yourself, why aren't these people stepping on the mines? And after a while, you start thinking, these guys, they're all the enemy. Like many veterans who eventually turned against the war, Bill Earhart would come to regret seeing the Vietnamese as the enemy. There are people who never had the joy of being a father, never got to be married, never got to live out their lives, literally because of me. 
and for nothing, for worse than nothing. I was on the wrong side. Those people were fighting for their country. As Bill Earhart was patrolling rice paddies with the Marines, an Army veteran named Jan Berry was back stateside. Barry had served in Vietnam in the early 60s. That's when American military personnel were acting as advisors to the South Vietnamese Army. He came to realize that the U.S. was backing a corrupt and incompetent regime in South Vietnam. Barry became so concerned about the escalation of the war that he moved to New York City to be close to the peace movement there. One day, Jan Barry saw a newspaper ad for an anti-war demonstration. I thought, that's it. That's the kind of organization I want to learn more about. So Barry went to the protest. It was spring 1967. As many as 400,000 demonstrators showed up. It was one of the largest anti-Vietnam War protests to date. 5,000 Manhattan marchers include students, housewives, beatnik poets, doctors, businessmen, teachers, priests, and nuns. Before the parade, mass draft card burning was urged. Demonstrators claimed 200 cards were burned, but no accurate count could be determined. Vietnam veterans were encouraged to march in front. Barry remembers seeing vets in their military field jackets. And then we stepped out into people howling and screaming, construction workers threatening or throwing some things. And then this great big huge block of veterans came marching along and this crowd noise just changed like, wow, what are these veterans doing with these peaceniks? And I thought, this is where I want to be. After the march, Jan Berry joined with a handful of other men to form a new group called Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Over time, VVAW would become one of the most influential anti-war organizations of its kind. And for the first few months, since we were such a small group of people, we went around with things we handed out on street corners in the village in Times Square and argued with people. It started real conversations. I somehow was of the misimpression that Americans really respected veterans and particularly people who spoke from experience and therefore they would listen, which some people did, but the government didn't want to hear about it. More and more veterans were opposing the war, but President Lyndon Johnson still insisted the U.S. could win in Vietnam. As 1967 gave way to 68, Jan Berry had no idea how long and difficult the peace campaign would be. In January 1968, the North Vietnamese and their Viet Cong allies in the South launched an extraordinary military operation on the Vietnamese New Year of Tet. It became known as the Tet Offensive. Roger, that was, uh, that was some sort of rifle uh, grenade. Forward! Have you pushed Well, the Tet Offensive was a massive, coordinated surprise attack by communist-led forces throughout all of South Vietnam, almost every provincial capital. Christian Oppie is a historian who has written a number of books about the war in Vietnam. And it was an enormous shock to the American public because for the year preceding it, they had been told again and again by uh, their civilian and military leaders that progress, though slow, was steady and gaining and that the enemy was tiring and on the ropes and that the end of the war was in sight. What it did was put the lie to everything the Johnson administration had been saying about what's happening in Vietnam and the progress we are making. Marine veteran Bill Earhart. 
And from that point on, it was it became perfectly obvious that the only the only thing left to be determined was how long the United States would stay before we finally packed up and went home. The Tet Offensive was Bill Earhart's last battle in Vietnam. His tour of duty was up. It was time to go home. He hoped he could put the war behind him, but that would prove impossible. The Tet Offensive in early 1968 is widely seen as a pivot point in American public support for the war in Vietnam. News reports from the war zone had grown increasingly pessimistic. More Americans came to believe that President Johnson had thrust the country into an unwinnable war. And the Pentagon said it needed 200,000 more troops. As public opposition to the war swelled, President Johnson made a startling declaration. I shall not seek, and I will not accept, the nomination of my party for another term as your president. The war was a central issue in the 1968 presidential campaign. Former Vice President Richard Nixon, the Republican nominee, made this television ad. I pledge to you, we shall have an honorable end to the war in Vietnam. Nixon was elected in November 1968. That same year, a Navy nurse in Oakland, California, rented a single-engine airplane with a friend who was a pilot. They flew over five military bases in the Bay Area, dropping anti-war leaflets. When they touched down at the Palo Alto airport, they met with reporters. We had a press conference, and I wore my uniform and said, I'm in the Navy, opposed to the war, and we just dropped these flyers on military bases. The flyers that Nurse Susan Schnall dropped from the sky encouraged active-duty GIs and military veterans to march against the war that Saturday morning in San Francisco. 200 active-duty GIs and 100 reservists would turn out, the largest gathering of the GI peace movement to date. The demonstration was October 12, 1968. It was at the time when there was the highest number of troops on the ground in Vietnam. Lieutenant Susan Schnall never served in Vietnam, but she saw firsthand the cost of war. She spoke at the rally in her Navy dress uniform and cap. As a nurse in the armed forces of the United States, the war in Vietnam has taken on a very real and personal meaning. It means young soldiers... I thought that if we stood up in uniform, And you could see that there were people in the military who were opposed to the American war in Vietnam, that it would have an impact on public opinion. It means training, working with young corpsmen to care for the ill and the injured, only to see them return home, shot up, minus a limb, grossly infected, or in a fly-draped coffin. We had a unit at the hospital that was called the amputee ward. There was a smell of infection and there are terrible cries of pain. And it just was, oh my God, you know, I am part of this military machine and, and I need to do something about it. Doing something about it would cost Lieutenant Schnall and many of the other GIs who openly opposed the war. Schnall was court-martialed for conduct unbecoming an officer, dropping the leaflets, and for wearing her uniform at the rally. Schnall was found guilty on both charges. She was eventually dismissed from the Navy, the equivalent of a dishonorable discharge. But Schnall stayed active in the anti-war movement, 
and in recruiting active-duty GIs to oppose the war. About the time of that San Francisco GI protest, a soldier living on the East Coast was having his own crisis over the war. Earlier that year, he had graduated from college with a degree in history. Which was a most unfortunate time to be a young man available in America. Uh, because the draft was going full blast. Uh, at that time, as you know, there were already more than a half a million American troops in Vietnam. 1968 was the peak year of the war. I believe that year there were like 19,000 fatalities among American troops. And I hadn't really thought about the war. David Courtright was so immersed in college life, he didn't pay much attention to the war. When Courtright's draft notice arrived, he was at a loss for what to do. I knew kids were getting deferments right and left, and, but they were the wealthy kids or the kids who were more connected. Young men with sympathetic family doctors got deferments for asthma, flat feet, mental health problems, and the like. Courtright had no such connections. So he decided to enlist in the Army. He was a trumpet player, and he hoped to get into an Army band. That might help him avoid getting assigned to a combat unit. Almost everybody who was being drafted in those days went right into the infantry because the Army was suffering high levels of casualties. The war was raging at its peak, uh, and they needed cannon fodder, literally. Courtright says he hated basic training, its senseless brutality, its dehumanizing depiction of the enemy. A lot of the other guys in basic had also enlisted to avoid being drafted. Courtright says by then, few of them believed in the war. Courtright remembers them being shown a film in basic training produced by the Army called Why Vietnam? There was a lot of, you know, hoots and howls, and uh, the sergeants would yell, you men, be quiet down there. If freedom is to survive in any American hometown, it must be preserved in such places as South Vietnam. There was an atmosphere of doubt and skepticism right from the beginning among most of the troops. Courtright ended up in an army band at Fort Hamilton, a base in Brooklyn. He was never sent to Vietnam. From the beginning of his military service, Courtright had questions about the war. At Fort Hamilton, he read a book about the history of the war in Vietnam, and he felt an intense moral crisis. What really hit me was that I was part of something that was really wrong, profoundly unjust. And if I kept on with this, I couldn't be true to myself. I would be turning into something I didn't want to be. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to be in life, but I didn't want to be compromising basic values of what's right or wrong. So David Courtright joined other GIs in uniform at anti-war rallies in New York. This was a way in which I could try to speak against the war, talk back to the army, if you will. And, And my thinking was, if people see that even the soldiers are opposed to the war, surely they're going to pay attention. I mean, it's one thing to have students protesting or whatever, but if soldiers and veterans are speaking out, they've got to pay attention to us, right? Commanders at Fort Hamilton certainly paid attention. It wasn't long before Courtright and fellow GI protesters were transferred to Army bases scattered across the country. But David Courtright's personal fight to end the war was just beginning. In November 1969, he joined a three-day protest in Washington, D.C., As many as half a million people marched on Washington. The new mobilization to end the war in Vietnam began its 36-hour march against death from Arlington National Cemetery to the Capitol. The protesters came from all across the country. Some wore their military uniforms. The marchers carried placards with the names of GIs killed in the war. 
before the White House, each called out that name. At the end of the route, the placards were dropped into five coffins. That march in Washington is believed to be the largest anti-war demonstration in American history. Similar protests were held simultaneously in communities across the country. David Courtright was driving home afterward on the New Jersey Turnpike. He heard on the radio that Nixon had ignored the marchers. Instead, the president said he watched a football game on TV. Courtright was crestfallen. He thought to himself, what will it take for these people to pay attention? As it turned out, Nixon and his administration were plenty worried about the growing anti-war movement. Soon, events in Vietnam and at home would drive even more veterans and GIs to join the peace movement. There was as much rebellion and dissent within the military by 1970 as there was on most college campuses. I was angry, angry, angry. That's in the next episode of Soldiers for Peace, a podcast from APM Reports. Soldiers for Peace was produced by Kate Ellis and me, Stephen Smith. It was edited by Chris Julin. Mixing by Craig Thorson. Web editors Dave Mann and Andy Cruz. The APM Reports team includes Alex Baumhart, Sabby Robinson, and Shelley Langford. Fact-checking by Betsy Towner-Levine. The executive editor is Chris Worthington. Our theme music is by Gary Meister. You can find out more about the veteran and GI peace movement at our website, apmreports.org. While you're there, browse our catalog of more than 100 documentary projects, check out our award-winning podcasts, and let us know what you think of this program. There's also a place to make a contribution to support our work. That's apmreports.org. Please help us spread the word about this show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do your listening. This program is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Humanities. This is APM, American Public Media.